This is The Rundown on Monocle 24. Welcome to episode four of our special season of programmes coming to you from Milan. Our crack Monocle 24 team is bringing you all the tastiest tranches of news and the finest interviews and insights from Salone del Mobile. We'll be crossing to them in a moment. I'm Robert Bound, your host, and I'll be keeping you informed, entertained and in shape every day. I'll take you on a guided tour of one of Milan's best running routes a little later on in the show. Fear not, it's not all hard graft and intense cardiovascular activity, we'll take a moment to meet the design denizens in the city for this most important week in the calendar and sample some tasty culture and even tastier cuisine just for good measure. So join me and the rest of the Rundown team as we launch out of the blocks and into our stride right here on Monocle 24. Getting things started for us this Friday morning in Milan is our very own Marcus Hippie. Marcus, the floor is yours. Thanks, Rob, and welcome back to Milan for day four of our special coverage of Salone and this fourth edition of The Rundown. We are here at Nike's own venue on Via Orobbia, and it's soon a runtime again as Nike and Monocle have been organising joint runs via some of the favourite places of the Milanese. I'm going to go running as well shortly. However, first, let's hear from Monocle's Josh Fennert, who's been here for quite a few days already. Josh, welcome to the programme. What have been your favourite picks? So far. Uh, well, uh, th- there's literally so much to choose from. To distill it down into a couple of top picks is a tough job, and it's one being undertaken by Monocle.com. So we will have a slideshow at the end of the week with our favourite ten picks from the fair and outside of the fair. But I think I can share a bit of uh, a bit of that knowledge with you with Sounds you now, Marcus. You look desperate for it. Sounds good. I feel special. Um, so the people that are taking on the fair on uh, this one of the final days uh, should be advised to go to halls 16 and 20. This is where most of the the bigger, better brands are um, exhibiting. There's a lot of amazing new releases, and I'll draw your attention to a few of them. Uh, Moltani, the Italian company, have a beautiful wooden shelving system named uh, Reticolo. Um, SCP, the uh, the British furniture company, have launched the first chair by uh, Reiko Koneko, who is a ceramicist by trade, but it's a beautiful upholstered, laid-back piece. And uh, I think, um, you know, discovering something like that, a, uh, a designer turning their hand to something new and doing it with such um, such ease and such beauty uh, was a, a lovely find. Uh, another thing I noticed inside the fair is a real shift towards seeing Salone as an important part of the business model for companies that haven't exhibited here for a number of years. So String, the shelving company, um, or Yuna, the the cashmere brand that we're very familiar with at Monocle, um, have both, for the first time in about a decade, about nine years, um, taken up spaces at the fair. Uh, because they see it as being more important than some of the rival uh, rival institutions, say Maison et Objet, as that expands, as that moves to Singapore and to the Americas. People are realising that Salone is one of the places where the design industry all come. It's a necessary stop on the circuit, and it's become so important that brands who have turned their back on it in the past are actually uh, actually coming back. Josh, it's so easy to spend your days at the fair, but what is there anything going on outside of that fair? I mean, there's so much going on outside the fair. Um, again, it's, it's very hard to get your head around, but one, uh, one breath of fresh air within that, um, within that cacophony, within the noise, within the hundreds of showrooms, exhibitions, side alleys, um, that is worth discovering is Cinque Vie. So this is a design district that is less established than the, you know, Tortona or Brera. Um, it's not on actually that many people's radars, but Within it, there are a huge amount of amazing delights, and they've done what Milan actually does best. 
an age-old setting, a few novelties, a few beautiful new items, um, which are summed up by the, uh, the Palazzo Lita, which is a, a beautiful old uh, building centered around a leafy courtyard. And uh, we have the Swiss firm Punkt there showing off the work of uh, students from Ecal um, in Lausanne. And um, a little exhibition actually on Belgian design. I don't know how much you know about Belgian design, but um, I think it's got a bright future judging on some of the student work that's coming out. So the Palazzo Lita as part of Cinque Vie is a district that uh, won't be on many people's radars at the beginning of the week, but I hope at the end it gets uh, the, the good press that it deserves. That was Monocle's Josh Fernand. Thank you very much. Also, a bit earlier, I spoke to one of Nike's own people, Andy Kane, the vice president of footwear design. Nike has had a big trainer launch here at Saloni. Let's hear from Andy now. So we're launching now the uh, Nike Free Motion, which is a new step forward in, in this idea of natural motion and uh, brings something very new that we've never done before. Traditionally, natural motion has been around flexibility. Uh, the unique thing about Free is now we're bringing expansion. So the idea of expansion is in a foot strike, the foot expands, mm -hmm. it gets longer and wider. And if you think of a traditional shoe, it contains a foot, so it can't really go longer or wider. So with the new free, it allows the shoe to move naturally with the foot. So you have a more natural strike on the ground, so you have a better feeling with uh, how the, the foot's interacting with the ground. Tell me about the design process of that shoe. For example, I'm curious about the time frame, how long you've been working with that. So it takes about three years uh, to do something that's a kind of close rev revolution, but the ideas might have been bubbling in a, in a you know, a different state for a while. And what is the role of athletes in the design process? Well, the athlete is the center of every design process. So, you know, everything starts first with the athlete. The free shoe we're talking about, you know, the insight originally came from a lot of runners were training barefoot on grass. And, you know, the, the idea that the, the trainers were trying to deliver at the time was your feet become weak. So running barefoot strengthens them and running on grass is comfortable. So if you can replicate that, so you can run on any surface, that was the insight of how free came about. And that's a, a good example of how always with the athlete at the center, the solutions kind of build off that athlete at the center. And how important is it for your designers to leave Portland? To leave Portland? Well, I think there's opportunities like this for everybody. You know, a lot of the work in there was also done in Portland, some of the experimental shoes, which I think is also highly creative. Uh, and was done in that same way where we, you know, the the brief was kind of the same to the guys building, you know, the artist collab and then internal. And uh, obviously, for the guys who are obsessed with, you know, footwear design, they've come out with um, things more specific to Nike. But the uh, creativity, it's not necessarily you don't have to go to get creativity, but you do get insights and ideas, different things. So I think here, you know. We see from just seeing the, the guys talking to them, we get a lot, and then just being in Milan, it's a different culture where we can kind of draw things in and start to influence the ideas that we have. You said earlier that you have people from all paths of life working for Nike. I'm just wondering, is it possible to work for Nike and not be sporty? Absolutely, I mean, I think uh, the one thing that everyone has in common is they, they actually like sport or like the sports culture that comes with it. I think, um, there are a lot of athletes because the draw, um, personally, uh, I'm, I would class myself some loosely as an athlete. I race very competitive mountain bikes and uh, more action sports personally. But you learn a lot also from working in a sports company how to personally be a better athlete. 
So it's really interesting, both mentally and physically. You know, I, I race uh, downhill mountain bikes, so the, I have to be very fit, but also the mental side, you're going down very scary things. So you learn to manage both the sort of physical training side. So I have a training program, I have a trainer, I have a nutritionist to get myself fit. And then on the mental side, I've had help from mental coaches to overcome some fears that you can actually compete in a very scary course and be very relaxed because the way you um, are successful is being relaxed. And I think if I didn't have the, the sort of um, inspiration through Nike, I wouldn't be as competitive and as good probably as I, I can be with the knowledge I have. That was Andy Kane, the Vice President of Footwear Design for Nike. And during this interview, I put on my running shoes as I'm going for a morning jog with some fellow Monocle runners. That is why I'm now passing the baton back to Robert Bound in the London studio. He's going to take you through today's running route. We are headed for Porta Nuova City Live. Ciao. Thanks, Marcus, and we'll have more from our team at Salone and in the Nike space at Via Orobia. Plus, who knows, maybe another guest or two later in the show. Time to limber up now, however, then to gaze skyward. Carefully, mind you, especially if you're planning to up the pace, because Milan's ever-changing skyline is best viewed on this run, our fourth of the week through Porta Nuova. It begins next to the five-star Hotel Principi de Savoia and takes you past the newest collection of skyscrapers to crop up in the city from the Torre Diamante and Unicredit Tower to the City Life District, where the likes of the late Zaha Hadid, Arata Izozaki and Daniel Lieberskind have been commissioned to erect a new neighbourhood on the city's former fairgrounds. About one kilometre into the run, you may well spot a private housing project that has become a talking point not only in Milan, but in the wider world for those interested in the future of architecture in the city. Bosco Verticale was designed by Italian architect Stefano Boeri, who was previously part of Milan's city government and is perhaps best known for being a one-time editor-in-chief of Italia's respected architectural monthly Domus. Bueri's ingenious plan to create a high-rise urban park on tenants' balconies has won awards and global recognition. There's interest in China for a whole city to be designed around the principles he's laid out for greening our urban environment. Bueri spoke to us from his studio in downtown Milan. Bosco Verticale, the prototype, the first prototype of Bosco Verticale realized in Milano, in the center of Milano, two towers, one is 120 meters high, the second is 90. They are uh, hosting 21,000 plants and more, more precise, uh, 800 uh, trees from three to nine meters tall, 4,500 uh, brush and shrubs, and uh, something like uh, 15,000 plants, different species. More than 100 species, different species of plants and uh, around 30 species of trees. On the balcony, the balcony are two kilometers and 300 meters of balconies all around uh, the four facade of the two towers. And uh, the balcony are hosting this equivalent of two hectares of a real forest. So 20,000 square meter of a forest. And this is interesting because it's, uh, uh, it's really the best way to explain how this ecosystem it's in a way a, a, a graft of biodiversity in a center of a, of, a, of a city.
I think the, the vertical forest is, uh, is an experiment first. It's uh, an experiment and it needs time to be well verified also in its expectation. So I think it has been opened uh, one, one year and a half ago, in October 2014, and uh, now it's sold out, so it's inhabited. And the first results are, are, are quite positive. So the, the life of plants, trees, and shrubs, brush are, are it's uh, going ahead very well. And uh, you know that we have more than 21,000 plants in these two towers. And uh, basically they are growing. Uh, we are following the growth of the plants, the trees, and so on. And we are starting to see also some phenomena of uh, uh, reproduction because uh, the seeds thanks to the wind, are moving from different floors. And so there we have balconies where now we have new plants and new trees. What is also interesting in terms of biodiversity is that we have observed the reproduction of, of uh, birds. We have something like uh, 60 nests of uh, basically 20 different species of birds. So this is uh, a point that is I think it's, it's quite important to straighten the, the idea that uh, a building uh, like that one or two buildings like that one could really improve the biodiversity of species in a, in a hyper-dense and, uh, and con congested and uh, polluted environment like the one of Milano Center. I really trust on the capacity of future architectures to absorb nature and to enlarge the opportunity for life for different species. Now, besides the latest architecture, Route 4 takes you through a slice of Brera, where new dining concepts have been sprouting up, catering to those eager for something other than traditional trattoria fare. Via Solferino has become an address for restaurateurs eager to experiment, both on the menu and with their locales' interiors. One recent addition is Zaza Ramen, a Japanese-styled noodle bar that was launched by well-travelled Dutch chef and longtime Milan resident Brendan Becht. His perfect preparation of the plates is combined with a keen eye for modern design that has quickly one over the locals. We caught up with Becht in the kitchen to learn more. So we opened Zaza Ramen about two years ago and uh, mainly because there was not yet a ramen restaurant in Italy, in Milan. I had very precise idea on how I wanted the food to taste and how I wanted the restaurant uh, to look like. There are many restaurants, many Japanese restaurants in Italy, in Milan. And most of them are run by Chinese. And most of them are really like a cliche of what one could imagine of a Japanese restaurant. So a little bit uh, shiny black, a little bit of bamboo. So I didn't want to do that at all. Also because if you've been to Tokyo, to Osaka, you know, there's a lot of Japanese restaurants that don't necessarily look very traditional, very typical. And uh, European design, Italian design, Danish design is very much appreciated uh, in Japan. So I wanted to make a contemporary restaurant, contemporary design, and not uh, kitsch and not old-fashioned. So yes, a contemporary ramen restaurant, also concerning the food, so using this uh, typical uh, Japanese dish, which is ramen, fresh noodles served in a broth with a garnish, but I wanted to make it more lighter, uh, less heavy, less greasy, 
and uh, so we make our uh, our broths not with uh, pork bones but with veal beef and chicken bones and we make the noodles uh, like in Japan and uh, for example we also have uh, vegetarian ramen we have seafood ramen because in Milan you can get excellent fresh fish even though Milan is not a uh, the port, which is also really uh, catering for uh, today's people. People want to eat less fatty, less greasy, less heavy. So they want the full flavor, they want the umami, but they don't want the fatty part. So that's why, for example, the uh, vegetarian ramen, which is not really a typical ramen dish as from Japan, which is one of our most popular, popular dishes. Now we are in our dining room. We have two floors actually. Uh, with about 50 seats on each floor and uh, the concept of uh, contemporary design, contemporary art, uh, you can uh, feel straight away. Our tables, they are uh, custom made and they are wood. They still have the natural uh, edge of the, of the tree. We have the lamps that come from Japan, they uh, come from Tokyo hands. Uh, they're the lamps that are used for example in uh, Tsukiji fish market in uh, in Tokyo. Then above our bar we have shaded light uh, which gives this feeling of uh, Japanese-ness and the uh, design, uh, the, the pattern of the, of the cloth is uh, very similar to uh, wrapping paper from the Japanese uh, big department stores like Mitsukoshi and the Isetan. Uh, it's an image that is, uh, was also uh, taken by uh, a very famous Dutch uh, painter, Dan van Golden, uh, who lived in Tokyo in the, in the early 60s. So it's, it's like a non-typical uh, Japanese restaurant. And that's Route 4 for you here on The Rundown. Let's recap. Route 4 distance, 5 kilometers. Weekends are ideal for running this route. Admire the extensive foliage growing on the balconies of Stefano Boeri's prize-winning Bosco Verticale apartment towers. Found in Porta Nuova district, they are a definite route highlight. Today's Nike Plus Run Club tip. Head for the Nike store in Piazza Gaia Olenti to refresh your running gear or to pick up any essentials. And to run further, backtrack from city life to Parco Sempione for a warm down. On tomorrow's episode of the Rundown Route 5, our final run of the week takes us canal side along the 13th century Naviglio Grande. Today's edition of the Rundown continues with Monocle's team in Milan. We'll hear what's in store at Salone and meet some more special guests. One foot in front of the other. You know the drill. You're on the rundown on Monocle 24 with me, Robert Bound. Now it's a quick trip to the anti-doping caravan for me next, of course. Here to guide you through some more of the best from Milan until I return is a man who's always positive about life. It's Monocle's Marcus Hippie. Thanks, Rob. If possible, I feel even more positive about life after that quick jog I just did here in Milan with the help of Nike's guys. Well, now, here at Nike's venue on Via Orobia, the brand is exhibiting its collaborations with designers who at first think would not have much to do with sports gear. 
Designer duo Clara von Zweigberg and Shane Schneck got a phone call from Nike's office in Portland inviting them along and what they have come up with is a set of chairs that require the users to engage their bodies so that instead of slumping as you so often would you have to use your muscles to balance yourself. Let's hear now from the designers themselves. The theme is uh, very much about motion, balance, and yeah, the nature of balance, the nature of motion. And that's where we started. And we wanted to, to see how we could uh, integrate this uh, ethos into a piece of furniture or a seat. So we have explored with, with uh, the, the round base and uh, the materials that refer to shoes in a way. So the, the seats are... Uh, then the foam of the shoe and the, the base is sort of the sole of the shoe as we see it. And they were all really a series of experiments. Um, and the, the one thread that ties them all together is, is um, the requirement of the user to balance themselves on the piece. So actually each piece cannot, in theory, sit up by itself, although some of them do. They require an active engagement between the user and the chair. So you actually really have a certain amount of effort or, um, or yeah, engagement. It's like yeah, it is an, um, it's, it's always a balancing act. All of them have that, you know, so that there will be some exercise involved sitting in them. I think that's great when you look at like this kind of a collaboration with with a brand such as Nike. That actually, when you when you use the chairs, you actually have to exercise a bit yourself as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, I mean, a lot of recent research says that muscular atrophy is is a serious problem as people become more sedentary. So we really wanted to um, create a solution that would give people a temporary place to seat, but also require a certain amount of engagement and to be cognitive in their seating process of how their, uh, how their posture is and sort of get something out of it. Was it difficult to design chairs that actually force the user to use muscles differently and to balance him or herself? It was. In fact, most of our prototypes were literally uh, sticks, um, two sticks that we tested at different heights and different variations with curves on the bottom to see how much um, a person would be able to lean forward, lean back without falling over. But it, it wasn't really until we got these final prototype pieces this week at the show that we were actually able to know how they perform because with the, the massiveness of the material, it creates kind of a weight and a ballast for the, the user to, to use and engage with. And but it works well. It works really well. Yeah. We were quite surprised, happily surprised. <laughs> I think it's always good to get challenges. I could imagine that it's, it's something that all designers want somehow, that there is someone pushing you to a new direction. Yeah. Yes, it is yeah. wonderful to have a, a brief, to, to have something to lean on, that you're sort of, you have a problem that you are supposed to solve in one way or another. That, that, that is how I like to work. Yeah. And also, I think that the, the, the brilliance of this collaboration is that often we have so many commercial demands on us, and with this, it was really an experiment in the truest sense, because this is not, in fact, um, a, a commercial piece. It's just purely a, a research 
However, when I was trying your chairs, I was wondering if there could be some commercial applications, considering that nowadays we all sit in offices and, you know, we should kind of try to find ways of exercising our muscles somehow. Yeah, well, we hope so. We hope so. so. <laughs> yes, we hope so. <laughs> and, I, and I think that what, what is nice with them is that they are really for everybody. They're not uh, specifically for athletes, obviously. So, so you can sort of find... Uh, use for them in many situations some of them the ones that you can bring with you they, they could work fine in a museum for example you just they're, they're light and you pick them up and you can walk around with them and sit down when you when you need a little rest yeah I mean they're, they're really designed for for open open space I mean uh, we, we really never had any predetermined sort of space in mind when we conceived of them but um, for example, the smallest one is only 30 centimeters high, which is almost similar to a meditation stool, which is um, a stool that we think would be really cozy to have beside a fireplace if you want to be really low and, and, and have an impromptu place to set right beside a, a warm fire. Clara von Zweigberg and Shane Schneck, they're talking about their stools here at Nike's exhibition, The Nature of Motion. I liked the chairs very much. Actually, I would like to see some of them at Monocle's office as well. But now it's back to you, Rob. There's just time left before today's show announces its retirement to reflect on the best in design. We're running through some timeless design picks from Monocle's editors on the programme. Today it's the turn of the producer of Monocle 24's design show Section D, Henry Rees Sheridan, to explain why a largely unloved piece of Sheffield brutalism embodies the best of design to his eyes. Park Hill Estate in Sheffield is a building that I've become obsessed with recently. Uh, I recently made a, a documentary about it on Section D, where I actually got to visit it. It's the biggest listed building in Europe. It's a massive, brutalist structure. It is made uh, entirely out of concrete. And the reason why I like it is because it just embodies such a vivid story about post-war British politics, which is something that I'm really interested in. It was eventually abandoned and and evacuated and was just this massive hulking ruin looking down on Sheffield until 1998 when it was listed by English Heritage as a design object it is it's its size I think is the thing that I found most moving and when you walk through it with all these abandoned flats everywhere, the vast majority of the flats are still abandoned and, and you know, fully have kind of metal sheeting and plastic all over the, the windows that have been busted through. And you can see the signs of the old pubs with the flake kind of decaying off it. it it's intensely eerie in a kind of post-Soviet way. But the integrity of the structure still is affecting. And I think that testifies to the strength of its design. But having said that, I mainly like it because of the story it tells and because of the lives that you're able to kind of imagine being lived within it and the national story that is contained within it. Henry Rees Sheridan on Sheffield's Park Hill estate there. And that is just about all we have time for. More from me and from Monocle's Milan crew in the final show of this run of the rundown right here on Monocle 24 tomorrow. 
I'll be guiding you around the last of our special city running routes. As ever, we'll be taking some delightful design-related detours along the way. Don't you worry about that. Today's show is produced by Tom Edwards and Toby Hammond, who also ran the desk in Milan alongside Marcus Hippie. Special thanks, too, to Monocle's correspondent in the city, Ivan Carvalho. I've been Robert Bounds. Happy running, and thanks for tuning in.